Hey, this is Tyler Johnson, pastor of Mission Church located in Walnut Creek, California. I want to say thank you for tuning in. I hope this podcast inspires you, encourages you, and helps you live the life God called you to live. Enjoy. Are you ready for the message? It's a long one, so let's just get into it. Here we go, here we go. Last service, there's nothing after today, so that clock is a nothing burger to me. Okay, here we go. Uh, I'm kidding. It's, 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 it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be long. Okay, um, we'll see what happens. Okay, First uh, Corinthians 3 says this, and I, brethren, I think we should bring back the word brethren. This is my message. Let's just bring it back. I think it's a strong word, brethren. Um, anyways, okay, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal and as the babies in Christ. Right here, Paul's saying, I can't even talk to you like adults yet. I should be able to, but you're stunted in your growth. You act like babies. You process like babies. So I can't, I can't even bring solid food yet. He goes and says, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you still are not able, for you are still carnal. For you, where there are envy, strife, and division among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I'm a Paul, and the other says, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? Corinth was a church stuck in their carnality. When you, um, you say it this way, they were rebirthed in the spirit, but still carnal in the mind. When you're carnal in the mind, you're permanently stuck in infancy stage. You're in this stage of feed me, burp me, change me, love me, and if not, I'm going to throw a fit. And what Paul is trying to say is it's time to grow up. Being a Christian, it's free. But the cost of living the life, there is a cost to it. There is a time to grow. Um, the Church of Corinth is this amazing, you know, two chapters, um, two, two books in the Bible that just show this church that failed every test so we could pass actually the test. If Corinth was a kindergarten student, they, you know the ones that would like color perfectly in the lines, those people? Who, who was that kid in, in kindergarten that you just colored? God bless you, okay? And then there's the ones who colored outside the lines. But then there's that one kid that wasn't even coloring the book. They were just coloring the wall. That was the church of Corinth. They were the eat the glue guy, okay, in, in kindergarten. Um, if you get a little older in high school, uh, church of Corinth would have been the student that would have turned the communion class into a raging kager, okay? They were having booze uh, fest uh, kagers in the uh, church of Corinth when they would do communion. It was a church that was just failing epically. The church of Corinth would be like the wife you would never want to marry. And here's what I mean by that. Um, there was this husband who, uh, just I'll tell you a little story, uh, illustrated. There was this husband who um, was having chest pains and uh, thought he was dying and made the hospital. And um, at that moment, they saved him and he passed out. And so the doctor gives the wife the report. And she simply says, your husband's through, through a lot. Um, for him to survive, for him to live, Here's what you need to do in the next six months to a year. You're going to have to take care of his every need. If he wants his feet rubbed, rub his feet. You're going to have to feed him, bathe him, love him, take care of him. Anything he needs, you're going to have to do it. He cannot get a no from you. He just needs to hear yeses for the next six months to a year if you want him to live. She goes, okay, thank you, doctor. Husband uh, is in the, uh, you know, the room, and he sits down, and the husband wakes up and says, so what did the doctor say? And the wife says, doctor said you're not going to make it. Hope you got that joke. If you didn't, okay. Um, the Church of Corinth. You're going to need to love a city that's not loving you. You're going to need to serve a city that's not serving you. You're going to need to be the 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 standard bearer and the truth bearer in the city. And the Church of Corinth said to the city, "You're not going to make it." Because the reality is, is that there is a cost to saying yes to Jesus. There is a cost to saying yes to following God. And a lot of us say we want Jesus until we actually hear the list of things, what it means to sacrifice and give up and walk away from a carnal world and into a heavenly kingdom. I, uh, um, I'm the guy when uh, you're on the road and you're wondering who's always honking at you. It's me. 
okay? Um, I drive with one hand on the wheel and one hand right on the, st- on the horn, okay? Like, I, I feel like I'm helping the East Bay with every honk of the horn. Uh, people who are speeding, I'll just honk at them, you know? Uh, Rachel's like, you're like that, she's like, you're, you're acting like you're a cop right now. I was like, they're speeding in the, in the neighborhood, honk! I mean, I'll just do that, okay? But the number one thing uh, that drives me nuts is when there is a green light and the car does not move at the green light. I wanna do a survey real quick. So you're sitting behind the person and it's a green light, it's one 1,000, two 1,000, three 1,000. Who would wait till three 1,000 to honk the horn? Okay, the gracious people in the room, okay, okay. Uh, two 1,000, who would wait to two 1,000? Uh, one 1,000, anybody. Who would not honk their horn? Non-confident, just, I'll sit here all day long. <laughs> Take your time, where are you from? I got some coffee in here. Would you like some coffee? Like, like you're one of those people? Now, those are those people. Now, where are the people at where, like, you don't even need a second. You need, like, a millisecond, like, green. And if that car's not nudging, you're like, honk. Who are those people? My people, yes. We got places to go, people to see, things to do. You're like, Tyler, you're a pastor. You shouldn't be honking. I know it's my one thing, okay? I've probably honked at some of you in this room, Okay. Uh, I've probably been on the freeway and passed you and stopped real quick because I had to see the person that was slowing me down for the day. I've been that guy. Who is this person? See you later. Okay, all right, all right. Today, as your pastor, I know for a fact in this room there are some stuck Christians. The light is green. Abundance is ahead of you. Freedom is ahead of you. Your birthright is ahead of you. And today is the day that you're gonna say yes to serving, yes to giving, yes to freedom, yes to the things that God has called you to say yes to. You're a sheep in the Bible. That's one of the words that God uses, that people are sheep and God's the shepherd. Sheep don't know how to move very well. The shepherd's the one that moves them. And one of the ways that I think God's gonna move you today is I'm gonna be pressing on the spiritual horn of just things that are gonna touch our like, Honk. Okay, I'm not gonna honk. And you're gonna hear this spiritually saying, Man, t- today's my day. I'm growing up today. I'm no longer gonna be a baby Christian. I'm no longer gonna be blown by this culture. Today is my You're gonna feel it in your spirit. Honk. Today, I say goodbye to lukewarm Christianity. Today, I say goodbye to being blown by the news and being, 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 being torn apart by this world. Today, I draw a line in the sand and say, I'm moving towards my birthright. Today, some of you, you've been stuck. And Paul is saying, today is the day to grow up. Are you ready to grow up, church? Yes. Title of my message is a church that passes the test. A church that passes the test. Let's bow our heads. Oh, God, we give you this morning. We give you the message. We give you everything. God, I believe that you... You came to this earth. God, you did not send a condemner. You sent a savior. So we say thank you for sending the savior. And so Jesus, would you save us again today? Save us from our ideology. Save us from idols. Save us from our past shame. God, would you just sanctify us today? The ones that have been saved already, God, there's still stuff that needs to be moved out of the house. God, I pray that we would have the door wide open, say toss what needs to be tossed and bring in what needs to be brought in. May my words fall to the floor and your words soar. God, we need you. We need you. And everybody said... Who in the room likes tests? Raise your hand. Wow, there's a lot of you. Okay, this is the first time. We're going to pray for you, okay? I don't get it. For, on Saturday night, I had people raise their hand. Only Lisa raised her hand. She was like, <gasps> and we were like, shame. Um, it takes an interesting individual, a different duck, if you will, to love a good test. It's very, I mean, I'm going to be honest. I wasn't a great student. I didn't love tests. Um, I was extroverted, so I wanted to talk and just hang out. Um, 
But this is one of my mentors. They taught me this very early in my journey. God tests, Satan tempts, people tease. God tests to free us. God tests to refine us. God tests to develop us. He always tests us for our good, never to hurt us. Satan tempts to destroy us or delay us or to um, distract us from the things that we actually should say yes to. And then people tease because we just have a sinful nature sometimes, okay? So that's kind of why, why he taught me, you know, like, and so there's different ways that people tease, but, but, but what I want to focus on today is how God tests. Now, I don't like tests, but I'm thankful that things are tested. I'm thankful that airplanes go through a test, Amen. I'm thankful that a pilot has to go through a ton of tests and even a health test, a stress test. So when they sit in that seat, they've gone through a ton of things to say, I am proven. I'm going to get you from point A to point B. What airplane would you want to get in if you knew the pilot was not tested? I would never want to get in that airplane. And the reality is, is that when Jesus was about to birth his church, he said, I'm about to hand the keys to the airplane. I'm about to hand the keys of the kingdom to these disciples. But before I give them the keys to the kingdom, I need to put them through some tests to develop them because a tested disciple is a great disciple. I'm not going to give them the keys right away. They'll, 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 they'll crash the plane. They'll ruin the church. So for years, Jesus has taken his disciples through faith and trust and uh, showing that I'm the provider, you're not the provider, through different test after test. If you read the Gospels, you will see the disciples fail over and over again in all these tests. Epically. If you want to feel good about your journey with the Lord, go read the Gospels, okay? You'll see Peter flee from God when he says he's not going to flee. You'll see disciples saying, call fire down and kill him. And Jesus is like, oh my goodness, this is not the Spirit of God. I mean, like, he is walking through this journey with them. But after those three years, they go through all the tests. He who is faithful to start a good work starts to finish the good work in their life. And can I read you a part of the disciple stories that I don't think get enough pub? We know a lot of their failures. We know that Peter ran when a girl confronted him. We know all these things, but do you know how Peter died? When Peter was being crucified, he said, I cannot take the same honor of being crucified the same way as my Christ. Crucify me upside down. A man who fleed is now getting extra credit on the crucifixion day. Uh, another man, Matthew, was killed. Another disciple was killed by the sword while preaching the gospel. James the Great was beheaded in Jerusalem. Nathaniel was flogged to death. All these men fleed the night of the, the crucifixion, but now they're new men. They're new disciples. They're tested disciples. They're refined disciples. When things get dark, they do not flee. They stand right in the middle of it and say, here is light. When things are chaos, they are clarity. And the reason why is because they were developed and tested disciples. Nathaniel was flogged to death. The other James was thrown over a wall 100 feet but survived. So they beat him to death with a club. Andrew was whipped and crucified. And his last hours as he was dying, he says, I have long and desired this happy hour. He preached for two hours before he died. Stop. We are in a dark time in the Bay Area. We're in a dark time in our nation. It is gloomy, but the church does not run when it gets gloomy. Tested disciples run to the dark and say, hey, some light has arrived. I believe the time is now for truth to take center stage and all the other ideologies to fall to it because Christians are going to stand up and actually live truth and love with truth. This is it. I'm telling you, this, I am not like, oh my gosh, everything's terrible. No, I, just, I can just see it. I can see it with my spiritual eyes. I can see it with faith. The table is set for the church to rightfully take its place to change the world. But the only way it will happen is that there's a church that will pass the test. There's two tests that I want to focus on today, and the third one I'll kind of wrap it up with. The first test is some of this. We must be a test. We must be a church that passed the ordinary. We must pass the ordinary test. Acts 2 is this amazing moment in the Bible. If you're new to church, it's basically the birth of the church. Um, 100, 
change. Disciples go in the upper room, they're praying. And then as they pray and they wait on the Lord, the Holy Spirit descends on earth, starts living and indwelling in the disciples. Fire comes from their heads. I don't know what that looked like, but man, I can't wait to see it in heaven when they have some H, you know, HD TVs showing. Here's what H, Acts 2 looked like. And so they got fire going on. Tongues of men, they're speaking in tongues. And as that happens, Peter stands up and boldly proclaims Jesus Christ and the gospel message. And as he does it, 3,000 plus are saved in one day. The church is birthed. It's one of the greatest highlight moments of all the church. Goes on in St. Acts 2. I'll condense it for you. Go home and read it. But it says that they, um, they started sharing their life together in fellowship, that they were rich in awe of what God was doing, and they were rich in relationship, rich in fellowship, rich in the power and presence of God. And God added to their number daily. Come on, you know what I love about our church? Every week people are getting saved. Saturday night, people said yes to Jesus. Uh, um, Sunday morning at 845, people said yes to Jesus. And at this service, some of you are in the house, you're going to say yes to Jesus. There's something special. I'm never going to take that for granted. So Acts 2 is awesome. But what about Acts 3? Acts 2 gets a lot of pub. Acts 3 does not get a lot of pub. Let me read you Acts 3. It's going to get a lot of pub today in our church. Acts 3 says this. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. They were just going to regular, old, ordinary prayer. Acts 2, they weren't going to another mountaintop. They were going to steward the ordinary. There were no medals being given out that day. There were no fire from sky that day. There was no uh, thousands speaking in tongues, not 3,000 salvations. There was this regular, ordinary, old prayer. Have I told you that we have a prayer time on Wednesdays, 9, 30 to 10? Regular, ordinary, old prayer. Why would the disciples, after going from this mountaintop highlight moment of thousands being saved, just the next thing they do is just go to regular old team prayer at 3 p.m. at the temple? Why would they do it? Because they saw their Savior heal the blind, walk on water, heal the dead, uh, have the deaf hear, um, heal lepers. Uh, literally, the sick were healed. He would feed thousands. And after every miracle, he had this rhythm of going back to prayer. The disciples understood that if you wanted to fuel the extraordinary, you needed to be faithful to the ordinary. If you want an extraordinary marriage, start being faithful to the ordinary. If you want an extraordinary life, be faithful to the ordinary things. The reality is we have an appetite for the mountaintops, but we do not have an appetite to climb to the, the mountaintops. It's in the climbing where the church gets special. It's in the journey where it gets special. It's in the small groups where you're sharing life, and it's one conversation here, and one prayer here, and one team prayer here. And moment after moment, as you build this life, you start to look back and go, how did this become so extraordinary? It's because you're faithful to the ordinary. There's this moment in Matthew 5 where Jesus is... Um, drawing huge crowds, massive crowds. It says this, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Let me read you uh, the message translation one. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, the, uh, the, the committed climbed with him, arriving at a quiet place. He sat down and taught his climbing companions. This is what he said. Stop. Matthew 5 is the moment in Jesus' ministry where he preaches the greatest sermon ever preached on this planet. It's a sermon on the mount. Starts with the Beatitudes. It's a beautiful, beautiful sermon. He has a huge crowd. And now, I'm not a strategic genius, but if you're going to preach the greatest message ever, why would you go up the mountain just preach it to the crowd? But Jesus wanted to teach them something at that moment. I am not here to tickle the ears of a crowd. I am here to develop disciples. And one of the simple tests of developing disciples is, can I get your attention on an ordinary climb? Can I, if, I, if I go over here, would you follow me? 
If you really want me, would you actually be willing to climb just a little bit to come experience what I want to show you? Now, I'll, I'll, let, me, uh, let, me, let me unpack this a little bit uh, further. Um, this week I was reading an article, and uh, the article title just got me. I actually uh, did a screen capture of it because it got me. It's on November 7th. Um, what is the bird test? It can tell you how long your relationship will last with one sentence. You see like that, like, oh, dang, like, how long my relationship with Rachel going to, I hope we're doing good. I I hope I I passed the bird test. So so I click on it. The Gottman Institute did this study, and basically they said that they can tell by the way that you respond to your spouse's bid for attention is if you will have a trajectory to stay together or if you have a trajectory to separate. And so uh, what the bird test is, is actually your spouse saying, come look at a bird with me. Now, this, when I'm reading this, I don't smash it in every area of marriage, but I've destroyed the bird test. I was like, give me a badge, somebody. You know what I'm saying? Give me a gold chain that says, you know, metal, bird test, you know, gold medal, whatever. And so um, Rachel and I, in our marriage, there have been times where, you know, uh, we'll be at the house and Rachel will be like, Tyler, there's a blue jay out here. You got to see it, you know? And then, then I'll come over and be like, oh, look at that bird. It's blue and his name is Jay and he flies. Awesome. You know, there's one time where Rachel actually saw a blue jay and she's like, oh my gosh, it's eating a mouse. I didn't know they were carnivores. She started Googling blue jay are actually they can eat uh, uh, mouses so so but I've had other times where Rachel will say hey come see, look at this one it's a bright red one I'm like oh my gosh look at that red bird it's it's amazing isn't the gift of flight amazing you know so we engage you know and talk about the bird and then you know it's over and now now hear me out um, the the bird test isn't just about looking at birds it's your spouse bidding for attention for you to care about something they care about so we have a model in our marriage if it's important to you it's important to me and so I don't do the bird test Rachel I do the fantasy football test and so I'll be like babe, like this wide receiver, if I get this many points tonight, I win in my fancy football game. And Rachel's like, oh, so, so he's on your team and you're his coach. He doesn't know who you are, but, but, but you, 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 he's on your roster. Oh, and one of the guys in your league is your commissioner. Oh, is that his real job? No, it's his fake job. Oh, that's cool. Oh, oh. Have you ever won your fancy football league? No, I'm 0 for 18 years. Oh, you'll get him one day. Thanks. Conversation over. So, so as you read this article and start to see it, it simply just says, if your spouse is important to you, therefore, if it's important to them, it's important to you. And what Jesus is trying to do is he gives the bird test of all bird tests over and over again in our life. If a spouse in the East Bay said, babe, Mount Diablo was exploding. Volcano ashes are coming. It's, 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 it's lava. Oh, my goodness. Everybody would run to the door to see the uh, Mount Diablo exploding. Do we agree with that? A lot of us. God, you can have my attention when you open up the skies and the heavens. You can have my life when I get that big promotion, when I win the lottery, when I get that person, when I have the life that I've always wanted. When you do those things, then you'll have my attention. But can God have your attention on ordinary days at ordinary moments to give you an extraordinary life? That is the question. Can he beckon you in the morning when you're waking up and say, can we have some ordinary prayer together? Can we read the word together? And, and now here's the deal. I just got to tell you something real quick. Um, I say this all the time. Read your Bible. Hey, read your Bible. Hey, I got an idea. You should read your Bible. Hey, got an idea. Read your Bible. And sometimes I understand why people feel so intimidated by it because the reality is that some of you are like, I don't got two hours to pray and read. I want to communicate to you. I'm not asking for you to pray for two hours. I'm going to give you a specific time. I'm asking for five minutes. I'm asking for you to wake up 
And you're like, five minutes? I could, you can, a simple just gesture and leaning towards to see the things God wants you to see and look through the lens of the word with him. I'm telling you, that ordinary rhythm is gonna give you an extraordinary life. It's gonna create riches in your life. What should I read, Tyler, tomorrow? Open up John 1, read one chapter. Read one chapter. It's gonna take you two minutes, maybe three tops. And whatever, whatever if you have, if you read two minutes, pray for the last three. And pray, pray, pray that, you, you know, God's kingdom will come, his will will be done. Pray for your day. Thank him for things. Um, talk to God. Listen to God. And after the five minutes, go live your day with the Lord. If you don't want to read uh, John, you're like, nah, I don't feel like John. Go to Proverbs. There's a proverb uh, for every single day, 31 Proverbs. It's, uh, it's the 12th today. Read Proverbs 12 today. And then pray for a little bit. I'm telling you, if you enact that little rhythm in your life for five minutes, you will taste such richness that I know for a fact it will become 10 minutes. And some days it will still be seven minutes, and that's okay. But the reality is that when you ignore the little things and the ordinary things, it will bankrupt your soul. I'm going to show you two stories of what I mean by this. Uh, The Vanderbilts were the richest family in the U.S. in the 1800s. His name was Cornelius Vanderbilt. He uh, borrowed $100 from his uh, his grandma to build his uh, tugboat uh, transportation and railroad. At the end of his life, he took that $100 and it turned into $100 million dollars. When he died, he had more money than the U.S. Treasury did. He was richer than the nation. $100 million today would equate to trillions of dollars. When he died, he left his money to his kids. And it says this, within 30 years of his death, um, uh, no member of his family was among the richest people in the United States. Within 30 years, the richest man in all, richer than the nation, within 30 years, nobody was in the richest uh, list anymore. Now look at this. When 120 of the Commodores uh, came to a family reunion at Vanderbilt University in 1973, their first family reunion, 120 of them, there was not one person that was a millionaire among them. Bankrupt within 100 years. The richest man in the world leaves $100 million, trillions of dollars, and within a generation and a half, it is all gone. Uh, Let me give you some stats real quick. It is estimated that 70% of wealthy families will lose their wealth by the second generation. So what it's saying is that uh, parents make wealth, they leave it to their kids, and within one generation, all that money is lost. 70%, only 30% actually steward it. By the third generation, 90% will lose it. So 90% will lose the, the wealth, and then only 10% will still have it. Let's look at the book of Acts again. The church is rich in fellowship, rich in power and presence, rich in um, resources. It says in Acts 6, that they had so much goods, so many things that people had given and donated that they didn't have a resource problem, they had a distribution problem. They had to figure out new systems because people were so generous that they had to get it to the poor and needy in a better way. That that, that was the richness of the book of Acts. Fast forward 30 years, 29 AD to, to 59 AD, the church of Corinth, it is bankrupt. It is just like the Vanderbilts. They took the trillionaire inheritance that Peter and the disciples labored for, prayed for, and stewarded, and they took it and they bankrupted it. The church can bankrupt things so quick when we don't do the ordinary things. When we take the, 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 the responsibility of the kingdom and we create what I call blockage in our life, blockage in the church. Prayer is what gets your spirit moving. You ever had a pipe clogged in your house before? It, you know exactly what it does the things that need to get out start coming out the wrong place and it's disgusting. Can we agree with this? Can I just tell you, when you're not praying and you're not forgiving, the things that are supposed to go out that way start coming out this way and it gets really gross and disgusting. 
That, that, that toxicity, that, that if you were praying and forgiving, it would actually, grace would digest it out of your spirit. But instead of that, you're actually blocked up and you're actually spewing death and toxicity because you're actually not stewarding the ordinary things. You're becoming a bankrupt person with your speech instead of a rich person with your speech. You ever seen somebody who's ever had a blocked artery in their life? My dad had a heart attack. They put a stent in, saved his life on the table. Can I tell you real quick, when you do not allow the things of God to flow in your life, it creates death. And the only way that you will create things to flow in your life is through prayer, forgiveness, worship, and the word. They're very ordinary things that lead to an extraordinary life. I, uh, I'm glad I shared a story about somebody in history, but I want to share you a story in the Bible of somebody who neglected their responsibility. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israel army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Stop. It's a very simple verse. You wouldn't even look a lot at this thing. It's just the season where the king would ordinarily go out to war. His responsibility was to be on the front lines fighting for their nation. And then it says that he decided to stay back and he contracted somebody out to do his job. Joab, you go fight for me. Can I tell you real quick? I can't be the only person praying for your life. Don't contract out your spiritual health to me. I cannot cut it for you. My one message is not enough for you for the next six days. Me praying every day for you is not enough. You need to start praying for yourself. Stop contracting out things that you're supposed to ordinarily do. And so David contracts out his responsibility, stays back. And let's watch this thing just snowball in the wrong direction. Because he's in the wrong place at the wrong time, he's taking a nap during the day, and he walks out, walks out on the palace, sees Bathsheba, a girl bathing, and he sees her, and he's attracted to her. He sends for her. She's married. He doesn't care. He decides to sleep with her. She gets pregnant. He has her husband come back. He has her husband killed and murdered so he can try to fix his first problem. And basically, the snowball of people dying and him manipulating, and then they lose their kid. It's the darkest moment of David's life, the darkest moment. Where to start? Neglecting the ordinary thing of his life. My, uh, my mentor shared this book with me. It was called The Tender Commandments uh, by Ron Mel, a great pastor in Oregon, passed away. He said, one night stands don't happen overnight. He said, they start with just a glance. They start with that ordinary discipline of saying, I made a cup of my eyes not to look at another maiden, but instead you start with a glance and then it builds and builds and then it leads to death. And the reality is, is that Death does not start with a huge swing. It starts with neglecting life-giving things and starting to walk towards death-giving things. Can I encourage you today that if you start to live an ordinary life of prayer and worship, you'll walk away from the things that are instilled from you and you'll start walking towards the things of life and liberty. Can I, can I give you a quick little quote that I love? Craig Rochelle says this, this, it's often the small things that no one sees that result in the big things that everyone wants. I'm telling you, start laying it. Your spiritual disciplines will never make the highlight reel of life. They're not going to make the highlight reel of life, but they're going to lead to every highlight reel that you ever experience. Fall in love with the disciplines and the ordinary things of the kingdom. Amen? I want to encourage you, do not ignore your word this next season. Do not ignore prayer. Do not ignore worship. Do not ignore fellowship. Do not ignore serving. Do not ignore the rhythm of gathering each week. And definitely don't ignore the Holy Spirit leading you and guiding you. I'm your pastor today. Some of you, you are just... You're just around, and you're just forfeiting the life that God has for you. You're just, meh. That is not the kingdom. That is not your birthright. Take your birthright and say, I claim it. I'm going to walk in it in the name of Jesus. So we're going to pass the ordinary test. 
Thanks for clapping at the time I yelled at you. That was crazy. You're like, yeah, yell some more. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no. um, so we're going to pass the ordinary test. The last one we're going to pass. We got two, two more, but the last one's going to be quick. We must pass the treasure test. The treasure test. Matthew 10 says this. As Jesus was starting out his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked, only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. Everybody say love. Love. It's this moment where Jesus feels such great love for him. And if you know the story, he goes on to say, you must sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow me. You know how this plays out. The man cannot do it. He walks away sad. And what I find interesting is Jesus felt such great love for him, he had to go for the one thing in his soul that was stealing from him. Uh, let, me, let me unpack this real quick. Um, uh, if you're a parent in the house, give me a hand raise. So parents, you're going you're to understand this. If you weren't a parent, you were a kid, so you'll definitely get this too. Um, when, uh, if you have a kid and they are walking around and they're limping on their foot and you ask them what happened and you look at their foot, maybe there is a splinter in their foot or a glass shard. Um, a loving parent is going to sit their kid down and grab their foot and pull that glass shard out. I know very few kids that when this happens goes, I trust you, mom. I trust you, dad. Yank away. It's going to feel great. Oh, 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 oh. So painful, but I trust you. Oh, you're the best. You're the best mom. Thank you. I love you. They don't like, you don't like rejoice after these moments. Okay. Most kids, when this happens, they're like, oh, why you sicko? What have I done to you? Stop it. Oh my gosh. You're cutting my foot off. Please, please. You're like, like screaming. You're like the, the neighbors can hear you. Like, like pipe down. Call the cops. Like, like, like that kind of moment. I'll never forget the first time I had a huge cut in my knee and my mom put peroxide in it. The first time I was like, acid, you sick lady, you, I'm your son. You know, and my mom's like, Tyler, it's, it's infected. I, gotta, I wanna make sure it doesn't get infected. I gotta clean it out. I'm like, what does that even mean? She's like, if I don't, you can lose your leg. I'm like, put more in there, put more in there. You know, it's like one of those moments. So, sorry, I kinda, I kinda got a description of that. I felt, I, felt, I felt like you were with me at that moment. Um, I got a DeLorean, went back to my childhood. Okay, anyways, um, when, when Jesus uh, is walking on the earth and ministry and preaching, I have an aim every Sunday, to be honest. I want to I wanna build the disciples. I, wanna, I don't want to build a big church. Who cares? I want to build people. You know, we don't, we're not assembling a crowd. We're assembling the saints and the laborers to worship God. And, and so when I preach, I'm like, oh, man, I want, I want people to, you know, to feel like a warm hug, but I also want to stir up their, their faith. But there's a part of preaching that is supposed to go straight to your soul and take out the sliver of greed, the sliver of anger, the sliver of idolatry. And I know very few Christians that when a pastor leans in to pull it out where they go, I trust you, pastor. Oh, you're so good to me. Oh, my greed, thank you for dealing with it. No, this is not how it works. When Jesus was preaching about riches and money, he preached about it so much, one every seven verses, Jesus preached on money. He said in his, uh, his gospels that the spirit of manna, aka the spirit of money, would be the greatest competitor against the kingdom of God. That, that money would promise the things of the kingdom, but be a deceptive and give you nothing that you actually wanted. Your heart desire would say, oh, maybe money can give it to me. So it'd be the other God that you would chase after instead of God. And so as Jesus is preaching over and over again, he's just pulling at the threads of greed and at the threads of idolatry. He feels genuine love for the man. He goes, I gotta do some heart surgery. I wanna pull this out, will you let me pull it out? Now, 
I have been preaching for six years, uh, almost at Mission Church. will be six years old in February. I've preached on tithing zero times. I don't want to do it because it's like the biggest splinter to deal with because money, everybody's sensitive about it. They're, you know, churches have bad history with it. Um, it's a lot of people's idol in the room. Uh, it's where you find your safety. Um, you, you'll justify things here and there. So um, when people, you know, if, if I preached on money, like it would literally happen like this, like on a Sunday. Like if like money gets touched on all, it just gets really quiet. You know, like, uh, and uh, so I'm not gonna teach on tithing today. Um, I was going to have a whole sermon on tithing. I was gonna uh, start in Genesis and share that, you know, one of the very first stories is Cain and Abel and, and how Abel, um, brought his first to God, and Cain brought his scraps to God. And I was going to share that God, there's some things that God can't do. He can't lie. It's not his nature. He can't change. He's forever the same because he's already the best he, he could ever be. Also, he can't be second. He's preeminent. And so God cannot bless scraps. He can only bless people who actually put God first. So if you're not being blessed right now and not living a blessed life, it's because you're giving God scraps and actually not the first. This is, this, is, this is biblical principle. So I was going to teach that, but I'm not going to do that today. Um, and, then, and then I was going to go to Exodus. And, and I was going to go to Exodus, and there's this moment in Exodus where, where God tells him, hey, every time that you, I, I provide you with resources, your money, I want you to give me your first fruits. And when you give me your first fruits, your kids are going to ask, why are you doing this? Because when you start to live with God being first, with your resources, your finances, your time, talents, and treasures, when you start doing that, your kids are going to ask, why do you do that? He says, when your kids ask why, I want you to answer simply because I saved your life. It says in Exodus 13, it says, the, 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 the father will say to the son, son, we weren't always, uh, we weren't always ranchers. We weren't always farmers. We weren't always this rich. I was a slave at, at one time, but our God with his mighty hand saved my life. And because he saved me, everything I have is not mine. It is his. And so we gladly bring back the first 10% to our God. I was going to go throughout the, 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 the law and show you that not only was tithing before the law, 2,500 when Cain and Abel happened, but also was a part of the law. And it defines very simply that a tithe is bringing it back to the storehouse. It is not being a vision giver or, or, or a generous person. It's actually bringing back the storehouse and being faithful to God's house. It shows a Malachi that if you do it, you'll be blessed. Uh, so I was going to share all that stuff. I'm not going to do that today, though. Um, I was going to... I was going to ask you, if God told you to tithe, like, well, that's an Old Testament law. I'm like, what if Jesus actually said it in the gospel? Like, if Jesus told you to tithe, would you tithe? Well, guess what? In Matthew 23, 23, he says, should you tithe? Yes, you should tithe. It's such an ordinary thing that he doesn't even think he has to address, but he says it in one sentence and addresses it. And then, of course, then he doubles down in Corinthians through the Holy Spirit and says, not only should you tithe, you should be a generous giver. You should live with generosity. Then I was going to finish in Revelation. In Revelation, it says how Satan's going to control the world is through buying and selling of goods, a.k.a. through money again but I'm not going to do that today. <laughs> I had a whole sermon. It was going to be all 45 minutes. I was going to unpack each one. And I was like, if I teach that sermon, some people are probably going to start tithing, but they're going to start tithing like the rich young ruler. They're going to tithe to get. They're going to hear the message and say, well, if I do this, I get this. And the reality is, is God says, it's the only thing God says to test them on. Test me and I'll bless you. But I don't want to teach on tithing and then have a religious church goes, well, He's my boss. When I do this, then I get this much in return. So when I started preparing this message, it evolved into the thing where I was like, I want to pastor a church where you pass what I call the heart test. Not the tithe test, the heart test. Because there are slivers in your heart withholding you back from actually living the way God calls you to live and receiving the things God calls you to receive. This rich, wrong ruler, uh, God felt genuine love for him. And he says, there is still one thing you haven't done. You think God's done pulling out the one thing out of your heart? You think there's not one more thing he needs to pull out? Today, I, just want, to, I want to encourage you. 
allow God to keep peeling the layers. Hey, there's one thing. There's still one more thing. I am on the table of surgery. God, peel the next thing in my life. I trust you, God. So he goes, there's still one thing uh, uh, that you haven't done. Uh, Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have a treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Goes on to say, at this time, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. For he had many possessions. I want to encourage you to don't walk away sad today. I'm going to share a contrast between the rich young ruler and Abraham. One man walked away sad, and one man uh, went and worshiped and returned with even more blessing than he had before. And I'm praying that we're a church that worships and returns with more than we had before. So he goes on to say, he walked away sad. It's interesting to me, he walked away sad. He came up and said he wanted the kingdom. God didn't even, like, this is one of like, you know, there's no mountain you won't climb up, no wall you won't tear down, coming after me. This is one of those moments. It's like the rich young ruler is like, <laughs> runs to the guy. Sorry, that was really big stops. Um, sorry. Um, he runs up to Jesus, and as he runs up to Jesus, he says, I want you. I want the kingdom. And Jesus goes, okay, you want me? There's one thing, just go and sell everything you have and follow me. And he walks away sad. And it's like the person in the house that's, you know, like, I want to be, I want to have a six pack, but I love pizza. Um, I, I want to be ripped, but I sure do love tacos. I mean, we've seen all these memes on Instagram, right? It's, it, they're hilarious. Um, and the sad part is, is a lot of you in the house are like, I want a blessed life. I want the kingdom. And then God goes, okay, follow me. I don't want it that much. And then you walk away sad. There's too many lukewarm Christians walking around sad right now. Walking around with half a full tanks, half of their birthright. Things are being stole. They're walking around with the scraps kind of living because they're giving God the scraps. And so therefore, they're living with the same scraps. And my prayer today is the day that today's message would stir something in you and say, I'm done listening to the lies of the enemy, the lies of my flesh, and I'm going to live the way God called me to live. If he said it, I'm going to do it. So let me, let me read you the, the next little part of this, and then we'll go into the, the happier part because uh, uh, you got kind of quiet on me. Okay, um, Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? This amazed them, but Jesus said again, dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. William Barclay, one of my favorite uh, theologians, he wrote this in the commentary uh, from this. He goes, material possessions tend to fix our hearts to this world. We have so large a stake in it. We have so great an interest in it that it is difficult for us to think beyond it. And it is especially difficult for us to contemplate leaving it. Dr. Johnson was once shown around a famous castle and its lovely grounds. After he had seen it all, he turned to his friends and said, these are the things that make it difficult to die. Warren Wearsby said this, wealth is the acid test of character. For every hundred who can stand adversity, there's only one who can stand prosperity. The greatest test of your life is not the valley. The greatest test of your life is the, the two questions. How did I get my provision and how will I steward my provision? Some of you think you actually manufactured your provision. You think you provided for yourself. And therefore, since you provided for yourself, you are going to be the king of yourself. But a person who knows the Lord knows this. I am a stewarder. I am, I'm breathing borrowed breath. Everything I have has been given to me. All of my success, all of my resources has been given to me. Adam and Eve, where did they get their breath? From God. We all got our breath from Even your breath isn't yours. You are not an owner. You are a steward. You are somebody who's supposed to care for the things that God has given you. 
I want you to picture this. One of my buddies, uh, Tom Glazer, shout out. I don't know if he's in service, but he, he's just been processing life this way. He said, I feel like God gave me this, this book that has blank checks that I can write. The biggest check I can write to anybody I want to. And I can walk up to somebody and say, here's $10,000 for this. Here's $100,000 for this. And he's going to come back one day and look at this ledger of mine and see what I did with this checkbook. And I pray that I actually do what he wants me to do with it. Because every day of your life is like a blank check. And it says in Matthew 25 that he gives some one talent, one three talent, one five talent. But he gives all something to steward. And he's going to return one day. And when he looks at the checkbook of your calendar, the checkbook of your gifts, and the checkbook of your finances, where you were the person who said, God, you gave it to me, and you entrusted me, and I made sure it got to the places you wanted to get to? Or are you a person that says, sorry, I thought it was all for me because I made it myself, provided for myself, and I served myself and worshiped myself? You live a life like that, you will be a miserable human being. But today's the day you're going to grow up. Amen. Oh, this, this, isn't, this isn't baby bottle talk right now. This is grown food talk. This is me asking you to grow up as a believer and saying, God, I trust you more than I trust myself. Yeah. I don't tithe because God told me to. I tithe because God called me to live a life by faith. Yeah. There is something about if I don't tithe, I'm saying I'm my provider. But when I do tithe, I'm saying you're my provider. Right. It does something to my soul. It does something to my spirit. It does something in the spiritual. And some of you, you haven't even experienced it yet. I'm praying that you experience it this season. And can I encourage you real quick? If you're like, I don't trust the church. I don't trust the, find a church you do trust. Find a pastor you do trust if that's what's holding you back. Because I don't want me to be a person that's stopping you. Find a place you do trust, amen? Amen. It's funny how people become theologians when it comes to tithing. Right. Oh, hold on. on, What's the Greek on that text in Matthew? Now, now. Now, was there, uh, uh, hold on, was that, was that in Hebrew? Uh, I got I got was that canonized correctly? Like, it's amazing that's the one time somebody becomes a theologian on where to give and how to give, like the one thing. Anyways, okay. Um, I didn't share that in the other two services. That's, that's the third service. That's for you. That is for you. I, there's, a, there's a lot of actually, okay. Um, so, so, okay. So you got the, you got the, um, you got the rich man uh, um, who walks away. But then you have Abraham who returns to worship. So two men that were asked for the treasure, one walked away sad and one worshiped and returned with even more blessing. It says in Genesis 22, sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Let's look at this contrast. Oh, I pray it speaks to you. Uh, sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Uh, he goes, yes. He replied, here I am. Abraham, with literally response, here I am. I just got to share this with some people today. Uh, I saw this rhythm uh, in the Bible, uh, this um, past study. Abraham says, here I am. This is a common thread in the Bible of the beginning of a life-changing moment in servants and in people's cities. So Abraham said, here I am. Jacob, when the angel of the Lord uh, presented himself, he said, here I am. Moses at the burning bush said, here I am. Joshua, uh, testifying of uh, God's faithfulness, said, here I am. Isaiah, uh, one of the most famous ones in Isaiah 6, God says, is there anybody I can send? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Uh, Samuel, when he heard God's voice, said, here I am. Can I just tell you real quick, the kingdom of God advances not by perfect Christians, but by present Christians. It's like God's taking a roll call. It's like the Holy Spirit saying, all right, who do I have today to advance the kingdom of God? Can I encourage you, one of the most ordinary things you can do every morning is simply say this, God, here I am. I am present, I am yours. But when we forget to tell God, here I am, we start uh, living for ourselves instead. Oh, I pray we're a present church. I pray when God does roll call every morning, because here's the reality, God is gonna advance his kingdom. I don't want him skipping over me. I don't want to be absent to class. I don't want to be tardy. I don't want to skip class. I want to say, God, I am in session. Use me, here I am. Everybody said? 
He goes on to say, take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah, go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. It's the first time love is found in the Bible. First time in the text, love. And can I say real quick, look how it says, take your son, your only son, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah, and go and sacrifice him. It reminds me of John 3.16. This is a prophetic picture of, of course, Jesus, the, the better Isaac. Uh, John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Love is not scriptural until it's sacrificial. So many of us love with the scraps and the leftover things. I'll love if I got some scraps left over. I'll give if I got some scraps left over. We're not going to change the East Bay. We're going to change the Bay Area by living a scrap-filled life of loving with scraps. No, it is scriptural when it's sacrificial. We're going to love with sacrifice. We're going to give with sacrifice. We're going to forgive, and we're going to fill the sacrifice because that's when love really starts to take root in our life. Amen? The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took up his two servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told his servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. Stop. One man walks away sad. Another man, I want your treasure says, you got it, and gets the firewood and says, hey, stay here. We're going to go worship, and we will return. Abraham already knows his God. You don't test me to hurt me. You don't test me to kill me. You don't test me to steal my son. You test me to free me. You test me to bless me. Hey, guys, I got a test right now. And I already know the answer to the test. I, I, I've, been, I've been running with God for years. Yeah, we got decades. And every time he has proven himself true. It's just another test. But now that I know the answer, it's so easy. Yeah. Wow. I used to not trust God with a little bit. Now I trust God with everything. Yeah. Sit right back here. I'm going to go ace a test and I'll be right back. Yeah. And when I ace the test, I'm going to have more than I had before. Yeah. And it goes on to say that when he you know, provides Isaac. God, of course, provides a ram. And then he says, I'm going to bless you even more. And he starts speaking the blessing. And so Abraham comes back with a great blessing with Isaac and his life is established. And we preach about him still today. Nobody knows the rich young ruler's name. Nobody knows how his story ends. And that's the reality of a lot of us when it comes that we're at the green light and God has invited you to come. And some of you are still sitting at the green light sad because you just don't know your God. The reason why people don't serve the way they're supposed to serve, read their Bible, supposed to read the Bible, the reason why they don't give the way they're supposed to give is I just don't think they know God yet. They're still in that baby Christian level of like, God's cool. And here comes the last test that will change everything is will you pass the gospel test? Will you pass the gospel test? Now, catch what I did here today in the message. All I did with today was can you steward the little things in your life and can you steward the big things? Ordinary, the little, and the treasure is the big things in your life. And all I'm trying to do is the only way that you're going to steward the little things and the big things is if you actually understand the thing and it's the gospel. If your life is rooted in an encounter with God and a relationship with God. Let me, uh, let me read you a verse in Revelation 3. We must pass the gospel test. If you pass the gospel test, ordinary things are going to start becoming pretty easy to you. When you pass the gospel test, the big things are going to start becoming easy for you. It says this in Revelation 3.20. Jesus says, here I am. The church in uh, Revelation they are blind, they're sick, they are rich in goods and bankrupt in their soul. Sound familiar to the Bay Area? We are rich in goods in the Bay Area, but we are bankrupt in our soul. He says that you're actually wretched and poor, blind, not seeing the beauty of the kingdom. So he says, here's my antidote. Here is my medicine for your soul. 
He says, here I am. Uh, the, the theme of here I am, it's always good when man says here I am, but it's great when God says here I am. So God says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. The gospel message is not you trying to break out of greed, not you trying to break out of lust, not you trying to break out of anger, break out of shame. It's you opening the door and saying, God, break into the things that I can't break out of. God, come into my life, resituate the furniture, throw things out. Some of you are bad decorators. Some of you are bad at, at designing your house. And God goes, whoo, that is one ugly piece. Can I, can I get rid of that? You got unforgiveness in the living room. I want to have joy in the living room. I'm going to toss that out. I'm going to put something new in here. A lot of you, you won't open the door. And that's the gospel. The gospel is understanding that Jesus came to this earth, not as a condemner, not as somebody to hurt you, but as a savior. And people who know their savior is simply this, knock, knock. He's at my door. Not afraid to open the door. Some of you are afraid. Some of you are afraid to allow the Lord to be a part of not just some of your life, all your life. People who understand the gospel understand it's the greatest privilege to open the door and have the king move in. Because the king knows how to decorate like a king. A king knows how to live like it. The king's got standards for his house. Your house standards, they don't even hold a candle to what the king wants to do in your life. I, uh, I got to sit down at the table with my parents on Thursday. They came from Sunday to Thursday. And when you um, reminisce about life, it's, it's amazing how God will speak to you about different pictures. And I'm going to condense the story I shared in the first two ones because I feel like God did something different in this, this service and it was, it was beautiful to see. But I still want to just share this little nugget with you. The gospel message is the good news of Christ. That there was a man who came and died on a cross and conquered the grave and lived the life you could have lived, should have lived, um, paid the price you should have paid so you can now have the life you never deserved. Have the home you never deserved. I'm sitting at this table with my parents and we grew up on food stamps and we had a hard life. My dad was, you know, verbally uh, abusive and abusive. And um, so we're talking about our childhood and at first it's like really laughing and fun, but then it kind of gets kind of dark real fast because it's hard not to talk about our childhood without being like really sad real fast. Um, and so we're talking about life. And um, then we started talking about my dad's best friend that we used to go to his house sometimes and goof off. And I, you know, I know how I got brought up, but I remember, oh yeah, like uh, we, we went over there one time too to pick up um, Uncle Rhett's van. Now my uncle committed suicide, killed himself. And my dad went to go pick up the van to uh, take it to the junkyard. And he brought me with him. Why? I have no idea. I was three and a half years old. And I remember it like it was yesterday. It was a black van. I remember getting in there and looking in the little cup holder at things. And um, I t- told my dad, I was like, yeah, it was a black van. I remember that day. And my mom was like, Bob, why did you bring him to pick up the van? My brother killed himself. Like kids remember things, you know? And I, I wasn't trying to make it sad or anything. And uh, my dad's like, I did my best. I, was just, I did my best. And my mom's like, I wish we would have done so many different things. Oh, I wish we would have just done things so different. I'm so sorry. And I was like, mom, dad, relax. I'm great. I love you guys. Like, I'm so glad you're my parents. I've got, I've like everything in my childhood, God used and leveraged for his glory. I'm fantastic. I even said, I love that we were bankrupt poor with money. Like I, I love eating out every day because of it. Like I, I never take it for granted that I can go get a bite to eat somewhere because it wasn't about what we're going to eat. It was like, if we were going to eat. So I love my childhood. I said, I have the greatest life. We were at Dave and Buster's yesterday. I won a Roomba vacuum that vacuums the floor at Dave and Buster's. I got a great life, you know? And that's a lot of tickets, by the way. Um, 
one of those, you know, Brooks on little things, a vacuum, whatever. Um, and, um, and so we start laughing and, and my mom's like, I know. And I was like, no, like, I was like, no, grace fills the gaps. I've been pastor for 20 years. So many parents always tell me, I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have done that. So many people said, I wish I would have lived this way. Oh, my marriage, I wish I would have done this. And I wish I would have done that. And all it is, is them saying, I wish I was perfect. Stop wishing that you're perfect and start receiving this thing called grace. When you sit at the table with your Lord, I walked up to my room that, uh, after that conversation and I felt like the Lord just said to me, like, right back at you. When we sit at the, just, we were sitting at the table with parents, so I felt like the Lord gave me a picture. When we sit at the table, you reminisce on things I don't want to reminisce about. You, you beat yourself over things that I don't want you to beat yourself over anymore. I want to sit in your house. I want to redecorate it. I want you to enjoy my presence. I want to laugh with you. I want to heal you. I want to cry with you when you're crying. This is the relationship I want. This is the gospel. And when you start having that relation with Jesus, when he says do something, you're like, you got it. I'm going to go worship and I'll return. When he asks you, when you read your word, you don't wrestle with it anymore because you've been with your God and you know your God and you trust your God. Oh, I pray that we all pass the gospel test. He is our savior. He is our provider. He is our Lord. He is our King. He is our all in all. If you said it, we're going to obey it. Will you bow your heads with me? I don't know if it's your first time or second time in church. I don't know if you ever said yes to heaven, no to hell, yes to blessing, no to cursing. Ever said yes to salvation. If you want to say yes to Jesus today, on the count of three, I want you to raise your hand and catch my eye. You felt in your spirit. If that's you on the count of three, one, two, three, raise it up. You want to say yes to salvation. I see you and I see you and I see you. Come on now. Hands in the back, hands on the left. I see that. Come on, anybody else? I see you right in the middle just now. God bless you. Anybody on my right side want to say yes to Jesus? Oh, God bless you. Second question. I didn't ask this other first two services, but I feel like we need to actually have a physical response to what God was doing in the spiritual. Today's your day. You're saying, God, I'm growing up today. God, I was stuck at the green light, but I'm moving forward today. I'm moving towards my birthright. I'm saying goodbye to my ways and yes to your way. If you're that person, you just feel like, man, I've been on the sidelines too long in this thing called Christianity. I want to live the life God called me to live. That's you. Would you raise your hand? I just want to pray for you. Man, hands all over. We can work with this kind of church. God, thank you for the hands that are raised right now. Christian saying, I want to grow up. I'm no longer going to be a baby Christian. I'm going to live for my God. God, we believe that this area, this region is gonna be different because this church is gonna pass the test. Oh, we love you, Jesus. We love you, we love you. Everybody said? Thanks again for listening to the Mission Church Podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up on our weekly sermons. If you're in the Bay Area, we invite you to come join us on Sundays. You can find all the details on our website at missionchurchca.com. Again, thanks so much for listening and we hope to see you soon.